Our heart saying for tonight is in Matthew 12. So let's go to Matthew chapter 12 if you have your Bible. The first book in the New Testament. I have to say I love the Gospels. Do you guys love the Gospels? They're just wonderful. And that's really why I've loved this study uh, this semester. Um, The hard sayings of Jesus. Obviously, we have to go to the Gospels, right? And uh, I just think when we're in the Gospels, when I'm studying the Gospels, and I'm sure it's the same for you guys, you just see Christ so clearly. I mean, it's like you're with them firsthand. Um, I was literally blown away uh, about two or three weeks ago when Matt taught. And just seeing Christ's wisdom in his response um, especially in light of the religious leaders and their, their hatred for him and, and the way he responded to some of their difficult situations that they put him in. And, and you see the compassion of Christ. Um, you see his sovereignty. Uh, you see his, his, uh, his kingdom, his rule. We're going to see that tonight. I just, I really do love the gospels. I could say this, as I've, as I've been in the faith um, and I've studied the gospel more, I've just, I've just loved it more and more and more. Um, and I want to spend more time there. Um, anyway, and tonight I think we're going to uh, continue to see that uh, as we work through this text in Matthew 12 of uh, Christ and, and in, in all his glory. Let's read verse 22. And we're going to go down to verse 32. Well-known passage. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him. That is Jesus. And he healed him. So that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of, of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand, and if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Either in this age or the age to come. Again, this is a familiar passage to most of us. Um, and it's, it's often drawn a lot of attention amongst evangelicals, and rightfully so, because within this text, the verses that I just read, we have the, the unforgivable sin, right? Some of your versions read the unpardonable sin. There have been many comments and many speculations as to what this sin could be, and I hope to make it clear to you all tonight what it is. This passage really isn't easy uh, to interpret. Um, It's definitely a hard saying. More so along the lines of of hard to understand. Hard to understand, but I really hope to simplify things for you. I had to do that for myself as I was studying this passage. And 
I want to simplify the unpardonable sin for you, and then I want to get at the heart of this text. And don't stone me when I say this, but it's going to be new to you, uh, what I say here. The unpardonable sin is not at the heart of this passage. It's, it's not the main issue um, of this text. Unbelief is. Unbelief. And the two are different, and we'll talk about that. Ministry for Jesus at this point, he's right in the middle of his Galilean ministry, and uh, it's at its pinnacle in terms of its activity. But though his ministry is at its pinnacle in terms of what he's doing, he's preaching, he's healing left and right, the crowds, the multitudes are gathered around him, so is unbelief. Unbelief is at its pinnacle at this point as well. And yeah, with that being said, um, I want to first talk about what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? I'm going to do something a little unconventional tonight. Something a little unconventional in terms of working to this text. I'm going to start at the end, and then I'm going to go back to the beginning, and then I'm going to work my, my way down. Um, I want to put your minds at ease when it comes to this, this issue, the unpardonable sin. And so I want to deal with it first, and then I'm going to go back to the beginning and then work, uh, and then work down. Look at verse 31. This is where we see it. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. It's hard to believe such words would come out of Christ's mouth, is it not? It's hard to believe. And that's why I believe this text is oftentimes misinterpreted. Because the one who died for sin, the one who came to give his life as a ransom for many, for sinners... He deems a sin unforgivable. He deems a sin unforgivable. It is a sin. It is a sin. It's a particular act. And in verse 31, he says it's the, it's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? To blaspheme means to, to speak re- reproachfully against someone else. It's disrespectful speech, often directed at deity. You've heard this word before. That's blasphemous. It's disrespectful. To blaspheme the spirit means to speak evil against the spirit, to insult the spirit. That's what Jesus was saying the unforgivable sin was here. And given the context, ladies and gentlemen, that can only mean that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is one thing. One thing. Given that blasphemy is disrespectful speech directed at deity, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit can be only one thing. Look at verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. This is miraculous. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But the Pharisees heard it, and they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is this. Here it is, guys. It's attributing the work of Christ to the power of Satan. It's attributing the work of Christ to the power of Satan. And if you're a logical thinker, you're you're thinking like this. Well, Jesus says in verse 31 that the unforgivable sin is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You jump up to verse 
24, and you see that uh, when Jesus performed this miracle and he healed this, this deaf and, and blind men, the Pharisees attribute that work to Satan. And it's in this context that Jesus says, uh, the, the sin against the spirit, who, who speaks against the spirit, it will be unforgivable. And so again, if you're a logical thinker, you're, you're, you're asking yourself this. How is attributing the work of Christ to the power of Satan blaspheming the spirit? I'll say that again. How is attributing the work of Christ to the power of Satan blaspheming the Holy Spirit? And it's kind of obvious, isn't it? It's kind of obvious. But this is kind of important when it comes to understanding this passage. Everything that Jesus did was by the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything he did was by the power of the Holy Spirit, including his miracles. The Holy Spirit played a huge role in both the life and the ministry of Christ. So much so, listen to this, guys, that without the Holy Spirit, Christ could not have ministered anywhere or at any point in time. I want to prove this to you. Flip over to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And, and he came to Nazareth. It's at the beginning of his ministry in, Gal- in Galilee where he had been brought up and as was his custom, he, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up and read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found, place, and found the place where it was written. And he read, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of, of sight to the blind, to to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and all eyes, all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture, that is verse 18 and verse 19, the scripture that he read from Isaiah has been fulfilled in your hearing, in your hearing. We see in verse 18, Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He fulfilled this text. The spirit of God was upon him. The spirit of God, according to verse 18, anointed Jesus. The spirit empowered him to do everything, everything. To preach, he says in verse 18, to proclaim good news, uh, to heal. He says to recover the sight of the blind, to set people free. Into verse 18, to set a liberty to those who are oppressed. Everything, everything that Jesus did was empowered by the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit that was involved in the virgin birth, even the virgin birth of Jesus. Flip back to Luke chapter 1. The Holy Spirit is all throughout the ministry the life and ministry of Christ. In verse 34, Mary just gets some, some uh, interesting news, to say the least. And, she's, and, it, and, it, and it reads, And Mary said to the angels, How will this be since I'm a virgin? 
She was going to bear a child, right? Verse 35, and the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The Spirit of God played a role in Christ's life. In his birth, it was also the Holy Spirit that inaugurated Christ's ministry as well. Look at chapter 3 of Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, this is John, John the Baptist bapti- baptizing in the Judea wilderness. Now, when all the people were baptized and And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit played a role in the inauguration of Christ's ministry. In his birth, in the inauguration of his ministry, it also led Christ into the wilderness Chapter 4, look at chapter 4, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned to the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. This was crucial for his ministry, this test. And he passed the test. It was the Holy Spirit that enabled him to minister in one place and another. Look at chapter 4, verse 14. And Jesus returned, that is, he returned to the area in his hometown, in the power of the Spirit, to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. The Holy Spirit was everywhere in the life of Christ. Everywhere in the life of Christ. The birth, his life, his ministry, and listen to this, even his death, even his death, The Holy Spirit played a role in in Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. Romans 1 tells us he was raised by the Spirit. Hebrews 9 tells us that it was with the assistance of the Spirit that Jesus gave himself up. You guys remember that? He said, no one could kill me. I I, I give up myself. At the end of the Gospels, Christ gave up his spirit, and this, this, was the, this was with the assistance of the Holy Spirit, played a role even in his death and resurrection. And so when Jesus performed miracles, it was also by the power of the Holy Spirit. The, the power of the Holy Spirit was on display back in Matthew chapter 12. Go back there. When Christ healed that man, that's because everything that Jesus did was by the power of the Spirit. But when the religious leaders saw this, as opposed to paying homage to him, as opposed to calling him the Messiah like some did, they attributed his work to Satan. And that is when Jesus said this, the sin against the spirit will not be forgiven. The sin against the spirit will not be forgiven. And so again, I want to say this, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is attributing the work of Christ to Satan. And why is that blasphemy against the spirit as opposed to blaspheming Christ? It's because everything Jesus did was by the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to say it again. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is attributing the work of Christ, which was powered by the spirit, to Satan. Nothing more, 
and nothing less. And with that working definition, I want to mention a few more things about this sin. It's not unbelief. It's not unbelief. Unbelief is not blasphemy against the Spirit. Therefore, unbelief is not the unforgivable sin. Unbelief is not the unforgivable sin. Unbelief is not attributing the work of Christ to the Spirit, or or, sorry, attributing the work of Christ to Satan. Therefore, it is not the unforgivable sin. This sin mentioned here in Matthew 12 is a sin that is committed with the mouth. It it is not a condition of the heart. If there's no words involved, it can't be blasphemy of the Spirit. If there's no words involved, it cannot be the unforgivable sin. Blasphemy of the Spirit involves words. It involves words. Look at verse 31. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, but blasphemy speaking a disrespectful word against the spirit will not be forgiven. And just so this isn't misconstrued or misunderstood, look at verse 32. And whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, speaks against the Holy Spirit, will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. In the age to come. This is not unbelief. It is speaking a word. And it is speaking a word when you see the miracles of Christ. Here's the last thing I want to say about this this unforgivable sin. Can this sin be committed today? That's a big question regarding this text. Can this sin be committed today? And initially I, I believed that it could. I came to this text. But upon further study, my conclusions were different. There's two reasons why I think this sin cannot be committed today. Two reasons. Here's the first reason. The circumstances under which this sin occurred will not prevail today. They will never exist today. The circumstances in which this sin occurred will not and cannot happen today. Will not and cannot happen today. Sticking to the context here in Matthew 12, for this sin to be committed Today, Christ would have to be in the flesh, on earth, still performing miracles by the power of the Spirit. I'll say that again. For this sin to be committed today, Christ would have to be in the flesh, performing miracles on earth by the power of the Spirit. The circumstances of this passage will not and cannot be duplicated. It can't happen again. Christ will never be in the flesh on earth again. He will never be that way again. And he will never be performing miracles again on earth here. And so that sin cannot be committed today. That's the first reason. Here's the second reason. After the time of Christ, and this is really, really compelling. After the time of Christ, never is this sin mentioned anywhere in the New Testament. Never is this sin mentioned anywhere in the New Testament after the ascension of Christ. And why? Because the circumstances couldn't be duplicated. Therefore, the sin couldn't be committed. No Pauline epistles mention it. None of John's epistles mention it. None none of Peter's epistles mention it. None, None of these individuals were warning their audience, hey, guys, be careful. You're coming close to the unforgivable sin. 
I mean, I mean, a sin that, that, that wouldn't be forgiven by God, wouldn't you think they would want to mention it to, their, to the people they shepherd? But not once. Not once. And the reason for that was because Christ was not on the earth. And he was not performing miracles. Therefore, the sin could not be committed. If, if someone wants to commit this sin, if this sin is to be committed, again, Christ has to be on earth performing miracles in the flesh, and it'll never happen. It'll never happen. So relax. Relax. We need to tell people to relax in regards to this sin. And I would, I would say this, even if a person was fearful of committing this sin, that would be a clear sign that they wouldn't ever commit this sin. If a person was fearful of committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, attributing the, the work of Christ to Satan, that, that's a clear sign that that person wouldn't ever do such a thing. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, listen to this, ladies and gentlemen. It's an, it's an impious act by spiritless people. It's an impious act by spiritless people. It's an atheistic action that, that's a byproduct of damning unbelief. It's an atheistic action. Those who performed it, are suffering in hell. Those who performed it are suffering in hell. The persons who ventured off into this horrible sin would not believe. And listen to this, it's because they could not believe. They could not believe. This display here of the Pharisees seeing Christ firsthand perform a miracle through the Spirit and then attributing it to the work of Satan it's proof that people can reach the point of no return. No return. Did you know that? People can reach the point of un- unreturned. And I'll make this, I'll make mention of this. This wasn't the only time that the, the Pharisees had did this. Actually, flip back to Luke chapter 9. This is just a sign of their, their willful unbelief. You would think one would stop, right, when Jesus says that it can't be forgiven. Luke 9, look at verse 32. As they were going away, now you have to consider this, that Matthew's gospel isn't chronologically significant. This event happened after the blaseming of the Spirit in, uh, in chapter 12. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute, was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisee says, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. Again, again, they commit the sin. Again, they knowingly attribute the work of the Spirit to Satan. Unforgivable, unforgivable. This type of unbelief, is for certain to be damned, guys. And all unbelief will be damned, right? But, but this unbelief here, go back to Matthew 12. The, the unbelief in Matthew 12, guys, it's, it's different. We're gonna talk about that. It's different. And, and the reason for that is because it had reached a point, in my opinion, of no return. And so transitioning, I wanna talk to you about that. Is it possible to reach the point of no return? What do I mean by that? Is it possible to reach a point where, where you no longer can be saved? I would answer yes. 
there exists this type of belief that is unsavable. The, the onus of the sin is, is on men, but, but God is involved as well in this, in reaching the state of being unsavable. As men wallow in their sin willfully, God gives them up to it. But they obviously play a role as well. Let me show you a couple passages. Go to Romans chapter 1. The point of no return, Romans chapter 1. And this is really just a sad, sad text. You know, Paul is trying to prove everyone under heaven guilty of sin, and he does so. And in chapter 1, specifically starting in verse 18, he's addressing the Gentiles. Gentiles, and we'll pick up in verse 21 of chapter 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 24, here it is. Here's the process. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Again, verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonor, to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Here it is, verse 28, this is scary. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. He gave them over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, Ruthless, ruthless. This is a sad text. Again, take notice of verse 24. This is where it began. God gave them up. They didn't see fit to acknowledge him, and he gave them up. And then again in verse 26, for this reason, continuing in their sin and unbelief, God gave them up. And then finally in verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge him, God gave them over. He gave them over to a debased mind. That is a wicked mind, a depraved mind. This is is God giving a person up to a type of mind and heart that is callous and senseless when it comes to sin. And again, notice in this process, in this process of getting to this point of being unsavable, both God and man are involved. Both God and man are involved. God gave them up, but they were committing the sin. Let me show you another passage, John chapter 12. This one is even more convincing, in my opinion.
John chapter 12, verse 36. When Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them as the religious leaders. Though, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for the fear of Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes for God. Getting to the point where you cannot be saved. Look at verse 37. Verse 37 again. Though he did not, or though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe. Catch that. They did not believe when Jesus performed signs. And then verse 38, so that the word spoken by the prophet of Isaiah might be fulfilled, and then he quotes the passage, but then look at verse 39. Therefore, what? They could not believe. They could not believe. Verse 37, they would not believe. Verse 39, they could not believe. They could not believe. Guys, this is the point of no return. And yes, man is at fault, but also God is in this process as well. Verse 40, he has blinded their eyes after saying they could not believe and harden their hearts, lest they see and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. God has done this. So has man. There is a point of no return. And I would be foolish to think that there weren't any people in this room who are being obstinate towards the grace of God. And I have to warn you, you must stop. You must stop or God will give you over to your sin and you'll get to a point where you cannot believe. You cannot believe. Is that not scary? Is that not frightful? Would that not cause you to get on your knees, unbeliever? Don't get to the point of, uh, of unbelief. Unbelief that is cert certain to be damned. It's a scary passage. It's a scary issue. And I, I wouldn't wish, and no one in this room would wish that anyone would get to this point. And guys, as I was working through this, I was just thinking as a believer of the grace of God, the grace of God on my life, because without it, I could be here. Without it, you could be here. It's the grace of God, amen? The grace of God. I want to pray with you guys. We're not done, but I just want to say a prayer. Lord, this is a scary passage to think that individuals got to this point where they could not believe. They could not believe. Lord, I pray for the individuals in this room who are still pushing against, they're kicking against the goads. They, they don't want to come to Christ, Lord. Father, we see that you give people up. That's an that's your judgment, giving them up, Lord, and 
we don't want that to happen to anyone here. And so I pray that any unbeliever in this room would turn to Christ, that they would stop fighting, and that they would, they would, they would give their life to Jesus Christ. And Father, I just want to thank you for your grace, your grace upon my life, your grace upon so many others' lives in this room. Father, because we know everything that we've been given comes from you. And Father, if it wasn't for your spirit drawing us near to you, we would not have followed Jesus. So we thank you, Lord. We thank you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, let's get to the meat of Matthew 12. Everybody thought we were done. They was like, wow, that's early. Let's get to the meat of Matthew 12. And I guess I've been going actually for quite a bit longer than I thought. Um, let's go to Matthew chapter 12. And I'll try to work <laughs> through this passage. I thought I was moving a lot faster than I, I was. I'll try to work through this passage. I want to, for the remaining, yeah, for the remainder of our time, I want to talk about the characteristics of unbelief. The characteristics of unbelief. And I want to, I'll try to move as fast as I can. Uh, but I don't want to miss anything. Um, and the first characteristic I want to make mention of in this passage, again, at the heart of this passage, blasphemy against the spirit is, is, is unbelief. The first characteristic is, is obstinance. Obstinance. And really, this has already been hinted at more than a few times. Well, look at verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. It's only by Satan that he cast out demons. Again and again, Christ displayed for these individuals a clear sign of his deity, a clear sign of his deity. In verse 22, he healed a man who was blind and mute. And then look at the end of verse 22, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And anybody in their right mind, right, would understand that this dude is different, <laughs> right? He's different. Look at verse 23. Most did, and all the people were amazed, and they said, can this be the son of David? Can this be the son of David? This guy's from God is what they were saying. The term son of David it was a messianic term. Can this be the Messiah sent from God? They knew he was from God. They knew he was different. Jesus' miracles and signs substantiated who he was. They proved his deity. They proved that he was different. I want to show you another example of a similar event like this. Go to... Go to Luke, or sorry, Mark, Mark chapter 1. Jesus' works displayed who he was. Verse 21, and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and they were astonished at his teaching, and he taught them as one who had authority. And not as the scribes, and immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit com, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And, and they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding 
regions. Again, we see it here. Jesus works. Display who he was. The, the people say, who is this guy? Who is this? What is this, they say. In verse 27, a new teaching? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him? His works proved who he was. They proved that he was God. But for some reason, the Pharisees didn't get that. They didn't get that. That's because they didn't want to get that. They didn't want to get that. The first sign we see of, of unbelief or characteristics is obstinate. It kicks against the gold, and it doesn't want to give up. Go back to Matthew 12. Obstinance. Unbelief is characterized by obstinance. Second thing that unbelief is characterized by is slander. And again, we get that from verse 24. Slander. It's slanderous. Beelzebub was a term, Baal, which was Lord, and Zebul, which literally meant flies, the Lord of the flies. Um, this was a pagan god. It's mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 1. And in Jesus' day, the Jews had considered this term um, as a nickname for Satan because everything that associated with this Lord of flies or Lord of filth or literally some translations uh, uh, called Beelzebub the Lord of dung or excrement, everything associated with this idol was a filth. And so they thought it fitting to give this name to Satan. And so when they call Jesus Beelzebub, they're saying Satan. They called him Satan. And again, this is just a sign of, of unbelief. It's a characteristic of unbelief. It, it, rather than calling Jesus Messiah, it called him Satan. I mean, this is, do we not see this today, ladies and gentlemen? People who see the work of Christ, people who, who see the work of Christ through, through, through individuals on earth, and they just refuse. They just, they just refuse to believe in Christ, and they, they, they defame his name. They drag his name in the mud. That's a sign. That's a characteristic of unbelief. Slanderous. Another characteristic of unbelief is that it's illogical. Verse 25, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. I mean, this is just common sense, right? If you have a kingdom, and internally, it's fighting against each other, either outside forces are going to come in and attack it, or it's, it's going to be a sort of a, an implosion. It's going to decay from within. Verse 26, and if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against Satan. How then will his kingdom stand? Unbelief is illogical. It fails, it fails to realize it's, it's contradicting statements. Unbelief is illogical. Another characteristic of unbelief. In verse, in verse 28, uh, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come, uh, has come upon you. It's unsubmissive. It's unsubmissive. The kingdom of God was in their midst, and they refused. They refused to bow down to the reign and rule of Christ. They wouldn't. They wouldn't bow to Christ. The kingdom of God was, was in their midst, and they wouldn't do it. 
It's unsubmissive. Another sign is it's contradicting. Go back up to verse 27. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out by? The Pharisees had disciples who were Jewish exorcists. And they were out casting demons, or so they thought. And so when the Pharisees come to Jesus and, we say, and they see him casting out demons, and they say, it's by Satan you cast out, cast out demons. They wouldn't even say this to their own disciples. Jesus says, by whom do, your, by, by whom do your, your disciples, the people who follow you, cast out demons? Is it by Satan as well? They were contradicting themselves. This is often a, a sign of unbelief. Verse 30, another characteristic of unbelief. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. It's rebellious. It's rebellious. Unbelief is against Christ. Unbelievers are against Christ. You're either with Christ or you're against them. You're either with Christ or you're against them. There's no neutral ground. When Jesus saw what the Pharisees were doing, he said, you're either with me or you're against me. And these individuals were against him. They were against him and his kingdom. And his kingdom. Guys, I hope this is clear. These characteristics of unbelief, they're present in our day and age as well. Obstinance. People being illogical in their unbelief. Contradicting themselves in their unbelief unwilling to, to, to give way and, and pay homage to Christ, unsubmissive. They contradict themselves, and they're rebellious, and they're rebellious. Again, I can only pray that if such people are in this room, if such people are in this room, I will call you to turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. Give your life up to Jesus. And in closing, I will say this as believers, as we come to this passage and we see the Pharisees act here, again, it is just by the mercy of God that we, we weren't like this. Amen? It's just by the mercy of God. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for this passage, even though it's kind of a hard one to look at. Father, looking at the, the Pharisees' unbelief, their unwillingness to turn from their sins. Lord, I just want to pray for the unbeliever in the room, Lord, that they would turn from their sin today. Lord, I want to pray for the believers in this room, and I want to, I just want to thank you, Lord, for get, granting them faith, saving faith, granting me faith, Lord. Again, because it's only by your grace that we didn't turn away from you. It was your spirit who came to us and so we thank you so very much, Lord, and thank you for your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.